Colorado Pod. I'm your host today, Susie Gerhardt, and I'm here with Bonnie Tsui. She's no stranger to Grotto Pod. She recently did an interview with Julia Flynn Seiler, and she did another one with Chris Collin about their book, One of Grotto's Lit Starts. But today is all about Bonnie. She's a graduate of Jones Beach and Harvard. She writes amazing magazine stories when she's not surfing. Her first book was American Chinatown, A People's History of Five Neighborhoods. She's now out and about with her new book, Why We Swim. And why we swim, it's a question I know I have a burning curiosity about. Why do we swim? I don't swim as much as I used to, but let's dive in. So, Bonnie. Hi, Susie. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad. (laughs) I'm so glad we're both here in the podcast booth. Very warm and cozy. Super cozy. Beautiful spring day in San Francisco, but you wouldn't necessarily know it <laughs> by the mood of the of the populace. Oh, boy. But it's fun to be in here. So anyway, you quote Moby Dick when you open this book. Um, I book, do. Book I had to read uh, on the drive to my freshman year of college. <laughs> I forgot it was our, our, uh, our uh, assigned reading until we were like uh, 200 miles away. So <laughs> what did you do? You, do you remember what you thought when you read that book? Oh my goodness. Um I was just like this is epic. <laughs> That's the word for it. <laughs> to be honest, I'll I'll share an anecdote. Um we were driving on the uh the Pennsylvania Turnpike and we had gotten some bad gas. We had gotten some actually like gas in the gas tank that was half half water and half gas from some Oh no. Some some, some um bad gas station and uh the car just stopped on a hill on a highway it was not a good omen yeah and i was but anyway the quote you have there at the beginning is uh yes as everyone knows ishmael declares meditation and water are wedded forever so yeah when i was reading moby dick it was not a meditative moment very anxious (laughs) one but but why we swim is such a meditative book and um you know i read a lot of books about physical activity and they can be celebratory mm-hmm. or investigative um you know like chris mcdougall's books um always have like a new paradigm and i know there's a couple out there like rebecca solnit's walking book and right i love Mur- that book yeah. murakami's running book but but what inspired you to take this this reflective approach to why we swim you know i um I am not a runner. <laughs> I am a swimmer. And I, what I've noticed over the years is that there's so many books about running, right? So um, the evolutionary biology of running, um, the you know training, stories of amazing athletes, um, you know, just great narrative journeys um, about running and sort of how we run and sort of how we're built to run and all that. And I just started to think about why and how there wasn't a book like that for swimming that took this narrative approach that really appre- uh, approached it and looked at it from this 360-degree view. Um, the way I just, I think that Chris McDougall's Born to Run is a real um, gold standard for this kind of book where he 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 builds the book around this race, um, but he takes the opportunity to range pretty far and wide with to talk about like the breakdown of his own body and so how he you know running was painful for him and how he wanted to run better and then just there's all these wonderful stories um in that book and um I loved that it was just a great story and I wanted to be able to do something like that for swimming and 
Um, and I had not yet found anything like that, and so I wanted to write that. Like the Chris McDougall books, you you have these really important characters mm-hmm. in the book. You got Kim Chambers, um, the Iceland the gentleman. The fisherman. <laughs> yeah. Good looker Frid Thorson. The I'll hum- save you the trouble. <laughs> yeah, the human seal. Thank you. Um, you have the the military figure in Baghdad. Mm-hmm. Kushjay. Uh-huh. Um, but... You know, before we get to those characters, I wanted to ask a question about um, flow. Mm -hmm. So you trace the word. You have this really beautiful moment where you trace the word through multiple languages and times Mm -hmm. from like old English Mm -hmm. through Sanskrit. Then I'm going to quote, you write this line, I follow the downstream movement of language and it offers up a raft of connections, flood, weep, swim, bathe, rinse, float. Um, So to me, this is a writer talking about swimming who's also talking about writing. Yes. So maybe before we get into the meat of the book, how how did you get your start writing? And did you have um, instruction? I love the way you talk about swimming instruction mm-hmm. in the book, just mm-hmm. getting your face in the water, blowing bubbles, those things. Sure. You mean writing, writing forever? Instruction. <laughs> yeah, for, writing forever. Um, wow. That's a, uh, I haven't thought about that in a while, how I came to write. You know, I always thought I was going to be an artist because my father was an artist, is an artist in my house growing up. We were we grew up in his studio, his downstairs studio, and we just grew up painting. But I think that that love of art and creativity started definitely there in the home and in this environment that really um, celebrated that. And I was just also such a bookworm. I just, my brother and I just read books like crazy. We did art like crazy. We swam like crazy. Like these were the things, these were the building blocks of our family life growing up. And so um, I think they all kind of, they flowed together. I mean, they really did. Oh my gosh, I just remember this when I was writing an essay to apply to college. um, I wrote about art and writing and swimming. All those three things like really were the foundational things for me. And they still are. um, I think the visual arts to a lesser extent, only just because I devote so much of my energies you know, professionally and also just personally to writing and reading. Um, but it is really fun to be now the parent of two kids, um, now nine and seven. They, they Felix and Teddy, they show up in the book, but like just living this life of, um, of writing and art and swimming with them because they also practice all of these things and they know how important it is um, to us as a family. And so I think... Reading and writing. I mean, I grew up um, just doing that for fun. You know, I made books. I put together little books, um, and I see my kids doing that. And so I think that is just a love that sort of, you know, you see people doing it, and then you want to do that, and you have a love of story. And I think that's just a very natural thing to pass on. Yeah, that's so interesting. When you first started answering that question, the first thing that popped into my head was you do things. You make things. You're from a family that does those things. And I mean, over the years, you know, encountering your magazine writing, you're one of the writers that every single article you write, I'm envious of. Like, (laughs) you did that. Such, you know, you go to amazing places, you do amazing things, and you write about them so beautifully. Um, Well, we'll get back, we'll loop back to that. (laughs) But let's open with a piece of personal history. Your parents met. In a swimming pool in Hong Kong. <laughs> it is the story that I'm going to keep telling over and over again because it is part of the book, right? But it's also the origin story of my family. And, um, I mean, I always also just talk about, like, that my father was a lifeguard. My mom was a great swimmer. 
and they just also just had the hots for each other and it's just it's such this wonderful moment and I think one of the early reviews for the book I think it was maybe it was like Publishers Weekly said um, it was such a Hollywood worthy moment <laughs> I don't know if it might have been Kirkus actually um, but it was it just was so um, you know they really spent a lot of time together on the beach in the pool and we did that as a family and and one of the, the great laments of my life is that no one in my family swims anymore except for me. Yeah, it's so sad, but um, but I do it. I think swimming is not just um, the beautiful thing in and of itself that I do because I, wa- I want to be in the present moment, but it's also a, it's a way to remember. So interesting. Yeah, you have that, that, that through line that comes through the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the reason, one of the reasons the book spoke to me so intensely is that I feel like my character as a human being was formed by my childhood time at the swimming pool. Mm -hmm. It's the reason I believe in the possibility of happiness. (laughs) I want to talk more about that. Intense and carefree times. Now your children are swimming? Yes. Yeah. And I think um, that that thing you just said about the possibility of happiness and the carefree time, I think that what swimming does for people no matter how old they are and I really keep coming back to this image in my mind um, one morning at the pool when I was kind of working through a lot of things in the book um, I just remember swimming my laps and I was watching this guy who always is like very stern above water he's probably like in his 70s and he's very serious seeming and then he just kind of he was on his way out leaving the pool but he dived down and was sort of spiraling under the water in the deep end and, you know, just taking his time. And, and he was playing. And then on his way up to the ladder, you know, he was doing all these funny things, flips and things. And I just thought that is why. It really clicked for me that day because seeing this guy do this, and then, of course, I subsequently noticed so many other adults doing it. Um, and then, of course, you, you remember um, kids during family swim anywhere, like in the pool, at the beach, you know, uh, just lakes, just this wonderful, it's an instinctive way to play. And I think that that is su- such a beautiful thing to hold on to, and it keeps us doing it. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, I think I kind of phased out with swimming as an adult in the mm-hmm. lap swim kind of world, but um, right. then I realized I could just go to open swims yeah. and just loop yes. around, and, and then open water came, and mm-hmm. I realized, oh, I'm... There are other possibilities to keep holding on to that, I think. Yeah. So yeah. speaking of the open water, Kim Chambers. Oh, Kim Chambers. One let's of my talk about people. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk about um, she's an incredible San Francisco-based swimmer. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about how did you guys meet and um, what's it like to swim alongside Kim Chambers in the San Francisco Bay? Um, it was like swimming with a really enthusiastic puppy (laughs) she's so I mean she is a force of nature and she's you know she's originally from New Zealand she has this beautiful um, Kiwi accent and so everything she says just sounds so um, I just love to listen to her talk (laughs) but she's also just a very enthusiastic human and um, really focused and generous um, and uh, you know she's very appreciative of all the things that have happened to her but I think she's also very open to the world like she's open to change she's open to possibility and I think that that's what um, 
that's part of what makes her so extraordinary. I'll, I'll, I will give a little quick sketch of what she, her accomplishments as a swimmer. So, so um, some years ago, she almost lost her leg um, from an accident. She fell down the stairs, and she developed what's called a leg compartment syndrome, where the pressure builds up in your leg so much that you, it's it's possible the tissues start dying, and you have to the very real possibility that you have to amputate. And she was maybe 30 minutes away from amputation, but the doctor saved her leg. And then to help rehab, she started to swim. And she had not really swum since she was a kid in New Zealand, like going to the beach with her family. And um, and it was really hard. Like she couldn't really walk. She really had to spend two years relearning how to walk again. And so her physical therapist said, you know, why don't you try swimming? She started swimming some days during the week at a pool in San Francisco. And then some guy she noticed, uh, she met at the pool, said like, hey, you know, you do you want to come swim with us in the bay? And she just was so surprised by that. She didn't know. She'd been living in San Francisco. She went to she went to school at Cal and she hadn't but she had never she had never known that people swam in the bay. And so she talks about this moment, this day that she went to swim uh, at aquatic park with the Dolphin Club. And she it's really like this rebirth. Um, and she, it's a religious moment. It is a, you know, it's really, it's a really um, powerful and emotional um, memory for her because it basically opened the door to the rest of her life, you know. And she, and and she ended up um, being the first woman to swim from the Fairlands to San Francisco. <laughs> Incredible! <laughs> and then amazing. she did the like seven. Something? Yes, she did the. Um, the Ocean Seven, which are basically the swimming equivalent of the Seven Summits for mountaineering, and she, um, you know, swam in all of these bodies of water. And at the time, I think she was the sixth person ever to complete those swims. You're in a new phase. Uh, yeah. You're competing again. Newish phase. Yeah. Well, actually, I'm sort of. Not, my coach keeps wanting me to compete more and more and more, and I just. I'm pushing her off. (laughs) You go back and talk about sort of the fundamentals of coming back to compete in a sport as an adult. (laughs) Yes. It's such a weird thing. I mean, I I think I'm just, you can tell that I, from my pause, that I'm a a reluctant competitor, at least in this, in this sense. I mean, I love swimming. And I think because I have worked out in the last few decades how to swim in a non-competitive way and to get all of the benefits from that, I am resistant in my mind to go back to that. And I think that was my f- my initial reluctance to join master swimming again. But I love my master's community. I love my team. And I, and I have really enjoyed competing with them. And my coach keeps um, coming after me to compete more. And I, I realize that I you know, I can only be out of town so many, so many weekends. And, <laughs> and but I but I'm also at the same time, I'm encouraging my kids to compete as well, just because I think it is important to push yourself and put yourself in this place of discomfort. Um, because you on the other side, you realize what you're capable of and what you didn't realize you were capable of. So I think what I'm realizing from this conversation with you, Susie, is that I should do another meet (laughs) (laughs) you know with running I have a similar trajectory where I I was a really competitive runner 
younger. Mm-hmm. And then it became my meditative thing mm. as I got older. Mm-hmm. And I never wanted to return to competition. It just wasn't right. interesting it just because I had adjusted. It. But I like competition itself, so I compete in other things yes. now. Okay, got it. Um, yeah. That are social. Yeah. Just to have that feeling of like. It's putting yourself out there. It's a little bit of risk. It makes you uncomfortable. But I also think that it is a moment to kind of center yourself and then focus, you know. And and I think that's really um, valuable. When you do things that are hard for you, yeah. everything else becomes a little bit easier. Yeah. But so Dara Torres. Yes, Dara Torres. She is, she is the opposite of reluctant competitor. <laughs> Put it that way. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I don't really follow competitive swimming mm-hmm. that much, mm-hmm. but I was made aware of her comeback because of her age. Right. You know, people who were yeah. helping me with like um, muscle rehabilitation were like, here's what Dara Torres does. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. I was so fascinated that she'd taken so much time off. Mm-hmm. What do you attribute to her success? Oh, her success during a time when other swimmers on her team called her granny. Yes, exactly. Like <laughs> in a little background. For that, that, she was 25 at the time <laughs> that she was called granny. But like ju- just the context is that swimmers, um, you know, she had had several comebacks to the Olympics. And by the time she uh, swam her last Olympics, um, she was 41 and she was the oldest swimmer ever to compete in the Olympics. And she um, ended up... Uh, seated first in the final which is amazing it was the 50 meter freestyle which is you know the it's called the splash and dash it's just the sprint it's like the 100 meter you know dash for um track um and uh she was you know given that coveted lane four placement in the final and i mean this is no surprise to people who follow swimming but she um she was touched out by one one hundredth of a second at the wall. And it's just, I mean, so many things about that story are phenomenal. And so in the book, I talked to her about that race and I talked to her about her competitive head because I wanted to get into someone's head and have her narrate for me what it was like to be, um, you know, A, to be such a competitive person, B, to be a competitive swimmer, C, over decades of her life where she came back again and again and again to the top of her game. And again, in this like last comeback, she was 41 and in, you know, gold medal contention for this event, which is amazing, especially for a sprint event, you know. Like a sprint fa- event, because older twitch. athletes, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Older athletes are known to have a little more endurance, a right. little more team sports. You can see savvy. Yeah. You can see gameplay. This, this is like is full on all out sprinting. Sprint. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she's just charging. And I just love her for that. And I love that she was able to be thoughtful and think about it um, and tell me a little bit of what she was thinking like during this whole time. Um, just this, A, the arc of her um, of her swimming life, but and then B coming up back after um, having a kid, yeah, pretty sweet. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, she's amazing. So now, the heart of this book, I feel, is in some ways just its its breadth, like mm-hmm. it's how far it travels geographically, but also through time. But um, you know, obviously, we can't cover it all. There's classical Japanese swimming. There's sea nomads um, off Malaysia. 
There's Saddam Hussein's swimming pool, glamorous <laughs> swimming story. pool, and Iceland, um, the human seal. So let's visit some of these places. Sure. Why don't you choose one, to, one place to start? Um, you know, one of the stories that I really loved and was surprised by um, was in Japan. You know, this um, practice of samurai swimming uh, that now is called Nihon Eho, which is Japanese classical swimming. But I call it samurai swimming in the book because it originated, these schools of swimming originated with the different samurai who were protecting different um, parts of Japan um, during the feudal period. And so they, each of those clans had a, um, their own you know, I, I guess you could kind of think about it as akin to like different martial arts um, developing their own techniques that are maybe geographically um, uh, based. And so specifically because Japan is a country of islands and there you'd have um, the coast or you'd have uh, rivers that you'd have to manage or you'd have lakes or just all kinds of different terrain um, adjacent to water and protecting those parcels of land from invaders or other enemies. And so they had all these scrolls um, from hundreds of years ago that would um, describe different techniques to ford rivers or to shoot arrows um, from the water, different techniques to tread water while keeping you know certain parts of your body out of the water and dry. Because I mean, remember that when you shoot an arrow, the feathers in the arrow have to be dry to, to fly true. And so I just loved finding out about this. Basically, it's the Japan's swimming martial art, um, like, you know, like judo or um, kendo. Um, and there are oh, different levels like of mastery. So like if you think about, you know, black belts and karate and just like how you can kind of move up and you do that with um, Nihoneho too. And so I went to Japan and I met with one of the masters of uh, the discipline and um, actually the head of the Na Japanese National Committee on the, on the martial art came to meet with me and we went to a practice that was held in a pool in Yokohama. And I just was so struck by um, just the beauty of this style of swimming and the complexity of how um, you think about what is successful, you know. So it's not just about speed, it's about efficiency, and it's about um, the beauty of the movements, um, because over time, of course, it, it evolved from a martial art to one that was practiced just for the, um, you know, for the beauty and tradition and also health, obviously. And um, there are people who practice it today, and there are competitions. Um, and so, in, and I was also really interested to learn about it as this foundation for the success of the Japanese national swim team. Because when Japan um, sort of entered international competition uh, sort of in the early 20th century um, for swimming, they were you know, they rapidly came to dominance um, in, I think it was the Los Angeles Olympics in uh, 1924, I think, or 28. Um, and uh, it was just really amazing to learn about. Um, and uh, it is supposed to be 
presented at the Tokyo Olympics um, oh, this cool. summer. So we'll keep our fingers crossed for that. Yeah, let's keep our fingers crossed. I did Google it just to see what it looked mm-hmm. like because I could only watch a small amount. I didn't uh-huh. really get the full sense of it. Right. But yeah, it had a really cool flow. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little about the sea nomads? That's just something oh, sure. yes. I didn't know much about. Um, so there, if you can think about, again, places where um, the islands, you know, different geographies uh, f- have brought forth um, different swimming traditions. And so in uh, the Philippines and um, Thailand and Malaysia, there are these sea nomads, just these, these groups of people who have lived on the water um, on houseboats for many, many years um, and have their own traditions of subsistence fishing. And I mean, they could, you kind of see them as like farmers of the sea. You know, they would move from place to place and follow the um, follow where the fish were. And so they learned to swim from a young age because they were not on land very often and so the kids would often learn to swim before they could walk and they would be diving down um, on one breath you know down to the bottom of uh, the ocean to collect shellfish and help with spearfishing for their families and um, and and what's sort of sad about that whole story is that as the subsistence way of living kind of gets disappeared from industrial, um, you know, jobs and push the push inland, um, they they have also like the, the the abilities and the traditions of these stories being passed down on, on you know, the, the mythology of of what governs this way of life and the sanctity of the oceans and protecting what you know where your food comes from. All that goes away, goes away, as as well as the sort of um, very practical instruction from a young age on how to swim. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in places like Thailand, you have you know you uh, you have UN campaigns to teach people how to swim. Um, in places where it was once um, part of the local culture. Yeah, you know? that's a sad story that repeats itself. Yeah, you know, exactly. Just kind of the decimation of indigenous cultures right. and then desperately trying to reclaim those bodies mm-hmm. of knowledge, not yeah. to mention, you know, the damaged. Right. And people. it's in a different and, and it's a when it's when it comes at you from the U.N., it's a different body of knowledge. Right. So it's um, but there but the but I include in the book just stories of um, some of the last sea nomads and sort of how they live. It's really amazing. And also how their bodies have adapted and changed. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of bodies adapting and changing, let's just just for a second, because I know like we have limited time and there are so many stories by the book. There are so many (laughs) stories, so many stories we're not covering here. But um, the how the the Icelandic um, swimmers survived. Yes. Um, So I this is the story that opens the book. And um, this Icelandic fisherman in 1984 fell overboard. Um, his ship, his fishing trawler that he was working on sank and everyone on it died except him. And he swam six hours in 41 degree water um, to shore. And um, 
he was able to do this, they found out uh, eventually, because his body fat was more like a seal's than a human's. It was like two or three times normal human thickness, and it was able to insulate him and keep his core warm and stable during this period of time. And he um, became pretty famous the world over and then sort of, he wanted to help, um, you know, research into hypothermia. And so he participated in a lot of experiments that were now written up in the British medical journals and, um, you know, like Johnny Carson called to like get him on the show. And, you know, he was, uh, he was a pretty well-known figure for a, a long time and he, you know, he wanted to live his life. And so he kind of quietly tried to do that. Um, and there was a movie made about him, um, a few years ago by an Icelandic director um, who, again, was very affected by the story when he was a teenager. And, um, but uh, Loye, is his nickname, <laughs> um, came to be really sad about that and um, just wanted his privacy still. Um, but, you know, every once in a while, his people are really interested in the story, and I was one of those people. And I really wrestled with myself, like, I want to talk to him. I would love to hear about his thoughts on swimming and hear him tell a story and wanted to know what his life was like since then. And I wanted to do that in a way. I, I asked myself, like, what is the what is the best way to try to do that and respect his privacy and respect his wishes and respect his story, his his version of events? And so I wrote him a letter and I wrote him a letter um, and sent it to him. And um, we started to correspond, and we were pen pals for about a year before we ever met. And we finally met, and now um, our families are our friends. <laughs> and it's a really, it was one of those friendships that, um, that I will cherish for the rest of my life. Yeah, you get a real sense of um, your methodology as a writer um, and journalist is just building relationships and there's a real organic way that those relationships form. It's very cool. Thank you. Um, so, you know, speaking of this special type of fat that allowed mm -hmm. this person to make this incredible swim, you say at the beginning of the book that we're land animals that were quote unquote secondary swimmers. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to be trained. We have to, yeah, we have to, we have to be taught. And you talk about fish a lot <laughs> and um, fish as our, as our ancestor. So I was, you know, wondering if I could name name a couple fish in the book and you could just give me your short short take version of why why that fish is there or why that fish is so Oh cool sure. Oh this is so this is going to be great because I don't even remember all the fish I put in. <laughs> all righty. Salmon. Salmon. I mean salmon are so cool because they change their bodies. I mean they become like freshwater to saltwater to freshwater fish. I mean, that's so cool. And they swim. Then we don't even know where they swim. You know, they swim so far and they make their way back. And it's just like, to me, they're such a symbol of adaptation and beauty. I love that. Abalone. Ooh, abalone. Abalone are beautiful and hardy and stubborn. <laughs> and then 
as we deal with the um, pounding vibration that you may have been hearing this whole interview, which hopefully will be limited by the time I tape it, um, <laughs> let's pretend right now we're underwater with the shark. Oh, the shark. Um, what is there to say about the shark? The shark, you know, I, I really love what Kim Chambers said about the shark, where she loves to swim out into the Farallones where they are, or just off the coast of San Francisco, just nearby. And she's just like, it's their living room, not mine. And she's like, we're just visiting, you know, and I and I and I respect that. I'm picturing Kim Chambers, you know, diving off the rock at the Farallons, which is like there are lots of sharks that are supposed to be swimming around there. And took me back. You know, I'm a very, I would say, timid open water swimmer. It's not that I'm timid. It's just I really Mm -hmm. can't take that much of the cold water. Mm -hmm. I don't wear a wetsuit. Mm -hmm. But the, the reason that I continue to do it is that I love the feeling of just being another animal yes. in the water. Yeah. I'll never forget, you know, the first time I spotted a seal, you know, a little mm-hmm. ways away, or just the feeling of looking out and seeing a bird just yeah. delicately land on the surface of the water. There's something so essential about that. And I think what's wonderful about what you just described is that you are just another animal in that marine scape, you know, that the the seagulls are diving and you'll see a seal um, and maybe your foot will hit some seaweed, but just that it's you are there on a level that you are not normally. And I think there's something so liberating and perspective altering about it that's just makes us feel more um, essentially a part of this planet. And you describe it in the book as like a sense of awe that you mm-hmm. get when you're in the open water. I actually have a little quote it's a quote from the book that I was hoping maybe you could read in, oh, sure. in your voice. Sure. The sea is a deep alien place. There's an energy to it, an element of danger that requires a giving over of the self that makes swimming in heavy water a kind of sacrament. It is a suitable environment to engage with the deep strangeness of the human mind and its fears. It just That's the feeling of the book, folks. It's just very beautiful. It captures the question why we swim. So the last question I have for you is um, the book tour has just begun. You know, we I, hope. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you did get to, you got to Tennessee. I did get to Nashville. What was that group? Um, it was the National Conference on Public Librarians, um, and it's held every two years. And it was so wonderful. It was the first um, time that I'd spoken in public about the book. And, you know, the book is not slated to come out until April 14th, but let me just tell you, ladies and gentlemen, public librarians are, and just librarians in general, are the best audience. They're just love books, and they're so curious, and they're so um, enthusiastic, and there's no better audience for you as writers as um, than librarians. So thank you to all the librarians for all that you do. Um, it was just such a wonderful um, and uh, welcoming way to um, to bring the book into the world. And, you know, I've seen you, I think, at least once at Pop-Up. I don't mm-hmm. go to every Pop-Up magazine. Mm-hmm. But do you have any special plans for any of your presentations, any multimedia or oh, stroke yeah. demonstrations? I do, <laughs> I do have some surprises and exciting things planned um, for book tours, should it happen, and we'll keep our fingers crossed. But um, I hope you will all um, read the book. Come see me. 
if uh, if and when I get out there on book tour. And um, thank you. That's our show for today. Grotto Pod is produced by me, Susie Gerhard, George Higgins, Ben Marks, Daniel Pierce, Beth Weingarner, Andrew Braithwaite, and Rita Chang Epic. The music is by Sugartown. Grotto Pod is concocted in house at the Writers Grotto in San Francisco. Please review and subscribe to Grotto Pod at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Susie Gerhard, and thanks for listening.